Welcome to Law and Crime's Daily Debrief, everyone. After nine days of jury selection, a final group has been seated to hear the New York sex crimes trial of Harvey Weinstein. The contentious jury selection process is over. Seven men, six white and one black, along with five women, three black and two white, will decide if Harvey Weinstein is guilty of five sex crimes based on accusations from two primary accusers. Among the questions the defense asked potential jurors during voir dire were these. Who here thinks that someone could have consensual sexual relations with someone at work to get ahead at work? Defense attorney Damon Sharonis asked, has anybody been accused of something they just didn't do? Can you be patient enough to also listen to cross-examination of people accusing Mr. Weinstein? I can assure you some of the female accusers in this case are going to be emotional and they're going to cry. No one in the jury box responded. The silence was presumed agreement. Sharonis also asked, has anybody heard of the term victim shaming? He asked if cross-examining a witness would count. One female juror said, absolutely not. Time's up. I'm blaming survivors. The question, an attempt to weed out claims made by Weinstein accusers that the adversarial court system belittled their complaints. This is a cultural reckoning to no longer create a culture that shames victims but puts the blame on who it belongs, the perpetrators. We are here to ensure that the focus of this criminal case is on the perpetrators. The perpetrator's actions, not his victims. The defense asked the jurors if they believed accusers would lie about sex assault, if they believed people could have sex with someone unattractive for reasons other than love, and if they believed an accuser would change her story after having consensual sex to later claim consent never occurred. The defense, as a warning, also told the entire jury that one dismissed panelist who promised to be fair later tweeted, I hope Harvey Weinstein gets convicted on all counts. One juror responded, the tweet was wrong. The defense further asked if anyone had read Ronan Farrow's book, Catch and Kill, and if any juror was a member of the Me Too movement. None were. Prosecutor Joan Aluzzi accused the defense of trying to strike white women from the jury. The defense countered by saying the state was trying to get rid of men and that there were other reasons to strike the women for cause. The judge agreed with the defense. Three attorneys are with us tonight to discuss what's happened in the Weinstein case thus far. Adam Conta and Michael Bryant are here with me in New York. Dina Dahl is in San Diego. So, Dina, I want your reaction to this one. One woman on the jury is the author of a book about three women's experiences with predatory older men. The defense lodged a number of objections. The judge denied them all. Should that juror be on this jury? I imagine a juror said that she could be impartial, and that is all it takes. It does seem surprising that the book is exactly on point here. Not only that, but she may end up becoming the, the foreman because she will claim to the rest of the jurors that she actually has a lot of experience and background. She's going to be a juror that the defense is going to want to continue to watch. They're going to be speaking directly to her, I'm sure, at some points during this. Adam Conta, we went through many of the questions that were asked by the defense. Did anything jump out at you? What, what struck you as either great or problematic in those questions? Well, I don't know if they're either, but they're certainly trying to get their theory of the case out there. Uh, this was an opening statement. You know, they were letting the jury know right up front that... Uh, 
we're going to say that they had sex to try to advance their career. It was consensual. Yeah, we know he's unattractive, but that doesn't mean that they still weren't into it when it was happening. Adam, you sound like you're prepping that uh, opening statement for the defense there. Michael, your thoughts on some of those questions. Did the, the defense go too far, or is that what the defense needed to do to defend this client, despite all of the complaints from the people protesting this case? Well, it seems to me a lot of the questions were designed just to precondition the folks that were there to hear the case. And maybe they didn't really want an answer. You know, maybe they were more rhetorical. Maybe it was just uh, to say, here, uh, you know, can you work with somebody and be not attracted but still have sex with them to advance your job? I mean, a lot of people could relate to that scenario, probably having seen coworkers maybe you know, take part in that. So I think that is an important question. That's something they need to know. And Dina, I'll ask your thoughts on some of these questions. Do you think the defense went too far? Do you think this was too abrasive? Or is it exactly what the defense needed to do? You know, the defense seems like one of their arguments is going to be that the women were just using him. You know, he's this powerful man and they were using him. They have to be careful. You know, that is a very uh, inflammatory type comment. And it's possible, depending on how these jurors' mindset, that they are already kind of not liking those types of comments from the defense. It's going to be a contentious case, and we'll be watching it when opening statements happen next week. More news now on the death of Jeffrey Epstein. Federal government says Epstein committed suicide in prison, but video from surveillance cameras around his jail cell is, according to attorneys, lost forever. Dr. Michael Bodden, forensic pathologist and husband to law and crime host Linda Kenny Bodden, is looking into the case for Epstein's family. Dr. Bodden believes Epstein was killed and he appeared on the Dr. Oz show with these findings. These areas right here, yeah. these little hemorrhages, tiny little blood splots, what do these particular hemorrhages, these burst yeah. blood vessels tell you? Why is it a red flag? In a hanging, the arteries and the uh, blood vessels, uh, the veins. veins, are both clogged off and the person is uh, pale, the face is They're pale. They're suffocated, so no blood goes up there. That's right, no so, blood coming in or out. So you don't get with, this. With a, a manual strangulation, there's a backup of uh, pressure and the little yeah. uh, capillaries uh, can rupture and they're best seen in the eye. Disturbing pictures, but interesting thoughts on that case. Connecticut authorities, meanwhile, are trying to take away the law license of an attorney suspected in the presumed death of Jennifer Dulos. Attorney Kent Mawinney once was counsel to husband Fotis Dulos. Fotis Dulos is charged with murdering his estranged wife, Jennifer, and Mawinney is charged as a conspirator. Mawinney remains in jail as the state's chief disciplinary counsel for attorneys has filed paperwork to suspend his law license and appoint a trustee to oversee client money in Mawinney's care. A jury has been seated in the case of a Florida man we'll be watching here on the Law and Crime Network. The case involves questions about ritualistic killings and a jailhouse informant. Here are the questions attorneys in that case had for jurors. There's no right or wrong answer. Donald Hartung faces the death penalty in Florida if convicted on charges he murdered his mother and his two brothers in this house in Pensacola. Authorities claim Hartung committed so-called ritualistic killings tied to witchcraft on the date of a rare blue moon. But prosecutors may argue a financial motive instead. Still, the jury questionnaire asks these questions. Are you familiar with Wicca? If yes, what is your understanding of Wicca? Then, have you ever used an Ouija board? If yes, please explain the circumstances. Also, have you or anyone close to you ever practiced Native American rituals? If yes, please explain the circumstances. And what we're asking you as jurors to do is look into your souls, look into your conscience, and tell us honestly 
or answer honestly the questions that we ask. The questions obviously don't state what the evidence will be at trial, but they do allow attorneys to understand who is sitting on the jury and whether the jury can fairly decide the case. Documents reveal that Hartung is said to have confessed to this man, Marlon Purifoy, a fellow inmate. Purifoy told authorities that Hartung told him he'd been planning the murders for four years. Purifoy is serving an attempted murder sentence after pleading guilty to attacking his girlfriend with a hammer. Nine women and three men are ready to hear that case. Three alternates also seated. Opening statements are scheduled for Tuesday morning after Monday's holiday. In court today, both sides gave some insight into what to expect for the trial. For the state's case, we're looking at 28 witnesses or so. Um, obviously, we don't know how long cross-exam will take. Um, but we believe we can put our case on in probably four days. If we could probably rest, if we started Tuesday, we could probably rest Friday. And I appreciate that from Mr. Myers because we have potentially, if we put on the defense, several expert witnesses coming in from out of town. And in fact, I've got conference calls with them all on Monday. And I anticipate that they won't be able to be here until Monday the 27th, is that Monday? Until the 27th, 28th time frame. So that would work out perfectly from the defense's standpoint if in fact we put on the defense. Jury consultant Ellen Turkheimer says both sides need to focus on two big questions in this case. Preconceived notions about religious beliefs and how the jurors view mental health. No matter how, if it's centrally involved or peripherally involved, if there's any kind of issue such as the Wicca religion in the case, then the panelists are going to be talking about it. Some might have preconceived beliefs, some might have some ideas coming in that whether or not they're actually true, this is something that both sides want to know about. So that's why they want to ask about it. They want to see what the predispositions are and the pre-existing attitudes are of potential jurors before they start to thoroughly question them. Whatever the defense is going to be, if it they're, they're looking to see, well, not only if it's raised as a defense that there's some mitigating factors or that he was compromised, that's one thing, but also they just want to know what the jurors think about that because some of them might come to their own conclusion, some of them might become a quote-unquote expert in the deliberation if they end up making on the jury. So they want to know what prospective jurors think about some of these other issues that pertain to mental health and mental suffering. And certainly if they have an experience with it, then that's going to uh, lead to a, a belief in, in mental health and what that entails. Let's turn back to our experts right now. Adam Conta, I'm going to go straight to you because you had a shocking reaction to the speed at which they said they were going to conduct this trial. Four days for 28 witnesses is madness. I, uh, I assume they have some idea what they're talking about. Four days, 28 witnesses, seven witnesses a day, roughly 20 minutes of witnesses that gives them. Uh, 28 witnesses, this is going to be like a month-long trial. I mean, we've heard of speedy trials, Michael Bryant, and, and I guess this doesn't mean the time between arrest and the trial. This means literally a speedy trial here. And, and we've got three victims. It would seem that this would take longer. I, I think there's not a chance it will take four days for 28 witnesses. I'm not a math major like Adam, but I think that is seven a day. It's, I mean, you're going to have a few percipient witnesses that will come and go quickly, but not the core witnesses. Not a chance. Dina, what do you make of this? Is this... Just the state giving us a signal that the state believes it has this so locked up that they don't need to belabor every single little point here and there. Do they have something really strong here that points to guilt and they think they've just got this in the bag? I think that's what it sounds like to me. 
if you really have a lot of strong evidence, maybe you only have to ask a few questions. In fact, we've seen, you know, we watch many trials here on the Law and Crime Network, and we see a lot of maybe over-questioning or over-lawyering. If they, if they got strong evidence, maybe they can be short and to the point, and I think that is what they're trying to say here. Okay, and Dina, what's the defense case here? We're hearing questions potentially about mental illness and things like that. Is that what we expect? Do we expect the defense case to be the longer case here? That's possible, actually. They may be trying to draw out, you know, whether or not he was even, you know, the circumstantial evidence in play. And then in terms of the mental illness, uh, different doctors may come to testify. Sounds like it may be family members. He looks like he he's taking uh, depositions or conferences with several witnesses on Monday. And that's true. They may have a longer theory there in the defense. It's going to be an interesting case. It may not so much be a question of who, but a question of why, and we will be watching it starting next week. And still ahead tonight here on The Debrief, sentencing hits a snag in a California quadruple murder. A jury remanded death for defendant Chase Merritt, but now he wants a new attorney. A look at a long, contentious case when we come back. A tumultuous day in court is not over yet on the West Coast for the man convicted of killing a family of four and burying the bodies in the California desert. A jury recommended a life sentence last year for Chase Merritt and the killing of his business partner, Joseph McStay, but a death sentence for the killings of McStay's entire family. Formal sentencing was supposed to start, but the defense requested an entirely new trial. Merritt's attorney, Raj Maline, claims there's an innocent reason the defendant's cell phone pinged in the general area of the victim's grave sites. Here is that reasoning. The court remembers there were cell tower records that the FBI had access to that we didn't get. And the court did uh, give us one day, uh, November, or sorry, uh, uh, February 6th, the court gave us that day of the cell tower records that the FBI had access to. The 1152 call when it was made, uh, the most likely interpretation of where Mr. Merritt's location would have been when that call was made was actually on the west side of the tower, um, which is where he said he was uh, all along. If, if the court recalls, even though the district attorney's office uh, continued to argue that uh, Mr. Merritt said, I wasn't there, I, wasn't, I was never in the desert, they, they said that over and over again. But what, as the court recalls, allowed us to play at least that portion of the interview where Mr. Merritt repeatedly said, if I were in the desert, I would have been at my sister's or my brother's, if I was there. I don't remember being, I wasn't at the gravesite, but if I was in the desert, I was at my sister's or my brother's. The defense came back with a PowerPoint and presented this evidence to the judge. This road right here is the road that his sister li lives on, a National Trails Highway. Her house is literally, I would say, in the direct line of that azimuth, at least in the range of there. And if you recall, Chase had maintained all along that he was in, if he was going to be in the desert, he would have been at his sister's or his brother's. Malene, yes. a lot of this was covered by Mr. McGee in his cross-examination. A lot of it was covered in his closing argument. There was an extensive discussion of the beginning and ending of the calls and the reasons for that. Not, not the direction, Your Honor. That's that's the that's really the key. Yeah, the ending uh, tower, which is here, which he hits on 330 uh, degree azimuth. That again is is going northwest. Okay, and that was that was not testified to in trial, and that's significant because again, it points directly at his sister's house. 
The defense continued the plea for a mistrial, a new trial, claiming prosecutorial misconduct. Defendant Chase Merritt kept his head over his face and then he said this. My intention is to finish what I have to tell the court and until you don't want to listen anymore. That's my, that's my goal. Well, if I had to estimate, at least on this issue, I could probably do that in 15 minutes, 20 minutes. All right, I'll give you 15 minutes. Okay. Your Honor. I can't talk. Okay, he wants to have a, a talk with me, Your Honor. I'm sorry? He wants to um, take a few minutes to uh, talk with me, <clears throat> if that's okay. And that conversation happened, and after it, defendant Chase Merritt said he wanted a new attorney. Then another long hearing in the judge's chambers. The conclusion denied. During this trial, though, the defense did cross-examine one of the investigators about law enforcement's use of cell tower data. And you wrote a case summary, correct? I did. In your case summary, you indicated that on February 4th, Mr. Merritt was in Fallbrook, Right? And he had turned off his cell phone as to not be, uh, so he could uh, evade his location. That was my belief, yes. Okay. And then on February 6th, so in other words, you were saying that while he's killing the family on February 4th, he turns off his phone so that his location won't be known, correct? I don't know that he turned it off at the time he was killing the family, but I believe it was turned off before the murders happened yet. And then, two days later, when he's burying the bodies, he turns it on and makes a series of phone calls to his wife and daughter. Objection assumes facts, not evidence, and is argumentative. And you wrote that in your summary, that he turned, that his phone was on during the time that he's burying the bodies in the desert, correct? I believe that what it... Same uh, objection. Was it your theory, and you wrote in your case summary, that he, as he was burying the bodies, his phone was on and he made a series of phone calls? Objection. Relevance of what his theory is. You wrote in your case summary that his phone was on February 6th while he was in the... Objection. Uh, hearsay. Relevance. The entire trial lasted five months with many pauses along the way and many fights like that one you just saw. Here's how the prosecution sold the case to the jury back during opening statements. How does this family of four disappear off the face of the earth? How does this family of four, a husband who's running a business, a mom who's raising her two kids, fixing up a house they just bought recently. How do they just disappear? Ladies and gentlemen, the evidence in this case will show you not only the how, but the why, and especially the who. The why boils down to a basic human emotion, something that we discussed during, during jury selection. The why boils down to greed. The why boils down to greed and greed's child fraud. 
Let's jump in with analysis right now. Attorney Dina Dahl in California for us. Dina, they're continuing on in this hearing. We're not going to have a final outcome for everything until Tuesday here on the debrief. But this has been a case with personality conflicts, scheduling messes, exculpatory evidence, accusations that there's unknown DNA, that the prosecution refuses to run through databases. Now the defense is saying that there's new interpretive data on the cell phone evidence that wasn't at trial and we deserve a new trial and apparently the judge is saying no. This is going to be a great issue for appeal and I think it makes a really good argument why our defense system is so important because the government has a huge amount of power. In this case it had the evidence and if it had evidence that could have been exculpatory that they did not hand over to the defense that's really important not just for this particular defendant but for our justice system as a whole. Oh, certainly. I agree with you, Dina, 100%. And I think that if there's evidence out there that somebody could use to defend themselves, they ought to be able to use it. Adam, we heard that the judge is basically saying, well, you know, there was a chance for cross-examination on this cell phone information. There was cell phone testimony in the trial. It might not be the same exact evidence, but, but you kind of sort of had it there, and that ought to be enough. Well, you heard the defense attorney talking about it. He said he had a day with this material. It's not just having the material. It's having it with enough time to be able to analyze it, use it in a purposeful and meaningful way. And it sounds like he never had the opportunity to do that. I mean, Michael Bryant, you can crunch all those numbers in one day, right? I mean, you know, what kind of pressure do we put on defense attorneys? In some states, this discovery needs to be turned over way in advance. And then in other states, it's legal to just dump it in the defense's lap, give them all oh, one day to look it over, try to grab an expert in one day, analyze everything in one day, and then come up with a theory, come up with an argument, and come up with a witness. Yeah, I mean, it has to be fair, let's face it. And this evidence is critical stuff. This is the stuff that puts merit at the scene. I mean, it doesn't get more important. I think it's kind of flawed in the first place, and it doesn't help to give the defense no time to look at it. And I know, Michael, we can go back and forth for hours with our issues that we had in this case. But at the end of the day, the jury latched on to this financial motive. They saw money moving back and forth, and they saw Chase Merritt sit down in a TV interview and say, I was the last one to see them alive. And they took that literally, not figuratively. Not that I was the last known person to see them alive. They literally took it that he meant what he said in, in every sense of the fashion. For a reason to find him guilty. It wasn't the burden on the prosecution, it was on the defense to find a reason not to find him guilty. Well, we're going to continue to watch that hearing into the evening here on the Law and Crime Network. We'll be back with exactly what happened for you on Tuesday. And then, of course, opening statements in the Weinstein sex crimes trial here in New York happening next week. It's going to be a busy week. We hope to see you back here at 5 o'clock for our recap on the debrief and for our live coverage of all of these trials we've talked about starting at 9 a.m.